Jewish audio on Chabad.org. So we are in the middle of the second chapter of Megillah Esther. In fact, we're on verse 12. You all understand that the heroine of the story is Esther. So why is it relevant to know what everybody else did? The answer is to give context. In order to appreciate where Esther was coming from and how Esther went to the king, the Megillah gives us a little bit of background. And the background is how all of the other maidens went before King Achashverosh. Verse 12, When it came time for each of these young maidens, to come to King Achashverosh, since things had already been finished, the protocol had already been finished of preparation, what was the protocol before you came in front of the king? It took 12 months of preparation. That's how many days it took. That was the time, the amount of time necessary for a full cosmetic treatment. Six months they used oil of mir, which we'll explain what that means. And six months with perfumes, and with other women's cosmetics. So I think the first, the first hint to something profound here, the first hint to something that's meaningful, is the word tor. The Targum says, V'chadmata sidur. The word sidur comes from seder, which means order. When it became, you know, when it was the next one's turn. But Rashi doesn't say that. And interestingly enough, Ibn Ezra doesn't say it either. They understand the word tor to mean, Rashi says simply, zman, the time. And Ibn Ezra says, tor naira is kemoy eis, like the time, like eight, ayin tough. And Ibn Ezra actually brings other examples where we see there is an appointed time for something. So it's not just that the turn has come, but rather that we've come to the time. It's the right time for something. What's the difference? So I actually have to ask myself the question, what is the difference? And why does Rashi and both Ibn Ezra, both of them choose to depart from the Targum, at least the primary Targum, although the Targum Sheni says kind of the same as Rashi, Targum Sheni says, Kadmata Zimna, when the time came. So why do they depart from the Targum, and why do they emphasize the time? And I think that the answer could be found in the book of Bereshus, where we read about a man named Joseph, who becomes the viceroy, the prime minister of Mitzrayim, and it says, Miketz Shnasayim Yomim, at the end of two years. And there's a lot of ink spilled on that. Why does it have to be the end of two years? The point is, when the girl went before the king, it wasn't because it was her turn. It was more importantly because she had done everything necessary to be successful in going before the king. That is to say that these, uh, these young ladies weren't going there with their arms twisted. And that if, if it came your turn, but you weren't ready yet, you weren't going to go. There's an emphasis here. The Pasuk is telling us all about the amount of time that was necessary for cosmetic treatment. Well, you ask yourself the question, Rick, who really cares? Who really cares how long a facial took to 2,000 years ago? Like, what's the difference if it took them six months or three months 
I mean, essentially, it was an extraordinary amount of time, an exorbitant amount of effort was expended. What difference does it make? And as I said, I think that all of the differences, you compare <coughs> what's going on outside of Esther to the way Esther reacted. The Malbim has a very interesting suggestion here. He says that this notion of the time, he says, what did it take 12 months? I mean, how much perfume? How, 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 how many treatments could a person go through? So he says, actually, this Achashverosh was such a, a crazy person, such a, a, a lunatic about which woman he wanted, that he had to have her checked out throughout all the seasons so that she was externally beautiful but also internally healthy. And he says that certain oils will be put during the winter to see how she reacts. So we, this was like a controlled situation where she's being analyzed by estheticians and beauticians and doctors. Everybody had to check out the goods before Achashverosh could have his moment. And, and uh, he says, you know, there's, there's certain times of fungus that grow on the skin only during the summer when it's hot, or certain times of internal issues that only come outside when it's cold. And the reason that they did these various kinds of cosmetic treatments was not just for the purpose of prettying or beautifying, but rather also to make sure that Achashverosh was getting everything that he wanted and that things were as perfect as one could possibly imagine. And we actually find this in, in the Gemara. The Gemara in Megillah talks to us about Shem and Hamar. What is oil of mir? What, what is it? So the Bchia Barabbas says, Sateches. And if you look in the dictionary, Sateches translates as oil of mir. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that. Like, that really helps very much, right? Um, but that sounds to, like to be some kind of, it, 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 it's some kind of therapeutic. It's some, it, it, there's, some, there's something more than meets the eye over here. Because Havuna says, <laughs> it's shemen zayis shalihevi shlishes. It's a oil that's made from olives that are harvested very in a very early way. And he says, why? But why do you use this kind of olive oil? Because it serves as a, a, a hair removal, and it's, a, it's an exfoliant, and it softens the skin. So we see within the Gemara like two, two different ideas, whether this is some kind of oil that has another property to it, or whether it's only a skin-deep cosmetic. So this is, this is how they would prepare to go to Ahasuerus. And that's how the next verse follows. Ubazeh, only after all this preparation, six months of trying to get to your apogee, your perfect reality, as perfect as you're ever going to be. So then, Ubazeh melech. And that's how the young lady would come, Ba'a melech. Malbim points out the word Ba'a means she wants to go. They were all excited about going. Which, by the way, was pretty extraordinary because you only got one night with this king, and if he didn't decide to call you again, you spent the rest of your life chained up in this harem because nobody, you weren't going to go anywhere else. You're stuck with some eunuch taking care of you because uh, the king wouldn't allow anybody else in there. And here's a young lady who's uh, going to spend the rest of her life waiting, thinking, hoping, maybe the king will call me again. And despite all of this, the desire to become queen, queen of Persia most uh, powerful monarchy of the day was so great that they actually were excited about this. And everybody wanted their opportunity to see maybe they could, you know, score, the, the, the score big and become the queen. And as they were coming, the Megillah says, that anything that a young lady would say, any request that would come from the harem to the king's palace would be given to her. Lava ima mi hanashim to come with her from the harem, from the, the which is how, how the Megillah refers to the, the woman's home. Ad beis hamelech until the royal palace. 
Rashi says, Kol she could have whatever kind of musical introduction she wanted. <laughs> she could come with a whole accompaniment. She could have an orchestra or a symphony ringing her in. <laughs> the uh, Ibn Ezra says that Bazem means only when making all these preparations before, only then would she then have permission to ask for what she wanted. And, then, and therefore she shouldn't come unhappy. She should come delighted, happy. She has everything that she could possibly want. Money is not an object. Anything the woman will ask for, a woman will get. And Achashverosh figures, in this way, the women who arrive in his uh, palace are going to be very happy and in a very good mood. The Malbim says, very interestingly, that the, the, the idea of having them get whatever they want <coughs> was, part of it was so that they should be doing this willingly. It shouldn't be coming, you know, forced. He says, in, in asking for all these things and receiving all these gifts, she demonstrated that she was willing, that she was a, a, a happy participant. And in, in reward for all these things, that she was going to give herself over to the king to be, you know, taken by the king. And that's the meaning, the Malbun points out, willingly, happily, wanting to go. So who needs Pasuk Yudbei, Yudbeizin Yudgimel? And Pasuk Yudalad tells us another Pasuk, all about everybody else. Ba'erev he ba'a, in the evening she would come. Uva'abayker he shava. And then in the morning she would return al Beis Hanoshim. She went back to the harem, a different harem. Because now she was elevated. Now she spent the night with Achashverosh. After a night with Achashverosh, you don't go back to the old harem. Those are for the young maidens. Now you graduate into base Noshim Hasheni. You graduate into level 2 harem. Well, this is Adyad Shajgaz. This was a different eunuch, Srisa Melech, another fellow who the king very kindly castrated so he wouldn't have any issues or problems. Shoymer Hapilagshim. And that was the guy who he trusted to watch his concubines. Now, if the king would ever want another one of these women and he would call her by name, then she would arrive. But he had to remember the name of the girl. <laughs> and he didn't get a bunch of, uh, in a photo album to say, oh, I think that's the one I liked again. No, he had to remember her name. And only if he would remember her name and call for her by name, then she would be able to come. She wouldn't come anymore to the king. Unless the king would want and, in addition to this, that was the rule. He had to actually summon her by name. If he summoned her by name, then she would be able <coughs> to come to the king. And despite all of this, says the Malbim, they went willingly. Despite all of this, this was not a very good deal. Or your statistical chances of coming out on top were not exactly rosy. Nonetheless, they went willingly, and this was something they all were looking forward to. And all of these psukim only come to introduce verse 15, because we want to know about Esther. We want to know the story of how Esther became the queen. So after you understand how these 12 months of preparation and how everybody's excited to go and that they have every request possibly granted which demonstrates their willingness, then comes the Megillah and tells us, When it came the time of Esther, the daughter of Avichayel, who was Mordechai's uncle, what she had taken as a daughter, to come to the king, 
whatever hey guy who was the eunuch that was taking care of the first harem, whatever he said, fine, she wasn't fighting with anybody, but that's it, she didn't ask for anything. But he asked her, and they say, Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Now we're going to come back to this idea of of what it means to find favor. So I want you to file that away, we will come back to it. But the bottom line is like this. There's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting things that we have to uh, really now uh, understand and appreciate to, appreciate, to, 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 to help us uh, really understand what is the Miguel trying to convey to us. What, what, what it, this Pasuk is replete with unnecessary illusions. It's like we have this big introduction to the turn of Esther. And we have to mention again her lineage. We have to mention her father whom she never knew because her father died before she was born. Her mother dies in childbirth. And we have to mention again that he was Mordechai's uncle. And mention again that Mordechai raised her. And that t- tell us that she's Neis Heschem Bechol in the eyes of everybody who saw her. So first of all, I just want to start off by saying that the Gemara says that Be'eni Kol those words, we'll start off with the last words, then we'll work our way backwards. Be'eni Kol means in the eyes of all saw meant means a number of things. You remember that Esther did not tell anybody her nationality, her ethnicity. And this is a major issue, by the way. We're going to see. This is going to play itself out in the verses to come. It's a big deal. Where does she come from? What, 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 what is her background? What's her lineage? We don't know. So the first thing is that everybody decided she's one of ours. Everybody looked at her, and they saw their nationality reflected in her. It's the strangest thing. The, the, the Babylonians were going around telling everybody, this is, she's Babylonian, definitely. The Chaldeans tell everybody, definitely Chaldean. The Egyptians, she's definitely Egyptian. The Greeks, she's definitely Greek. Everybody said, this is, this is our person there. That's, that, was, that was the way Esther was, was, was coming into the palace. And this is an important thought to hold, as you'll see later on, because Achashverosh is trying to solve the mystery, and it doesn't work. He can't get Esther to say anything, and, and, and nobody is able to prove where Esther comes from. Be'ni Korea also means, the Gemara says, that it was like a beautiful painting that a thousand people look at and everybody likes something different about the painting. I'm going to use a, a, a euphemism, like a Mona Lisa. I don't know, it's every, it, it was like the, the, the picture of, of, of beauty, a picture of perfection. To everybody, that's exactly, ah, that's the woman that, 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 that cap catches my eye. And different folks have different strokes. It's just, uh, obviously, you can't argue about beauty or about charisma. But yet, despite the fact that Esther had to look one way, she couldn't look six ways, Although it should be really funny looking. She had one look. She looked. She was who she was. Nonetheless, somehow, everybody saw what they thought was beautiful in Esther by looking at Esther. And the Gemara even adds that the Enikolayeha refers not only to earth, but also to heaven. In other words, what's being communicated to us is that Esther is a tzaddikus. They were dealing here with a righteous woman. We're not dealing here with a beautiful girl who got sucked into a vortex. And in the end, in the lurch, she still came through and said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do what's right. We're dealing here with an extraordinarily righteous woman because we find <coughs> the Pasuk says, that you find charisma and you have the good graces to know What's right, what's wrong. alikim in the eyes of God ve'adam. We say this in our benching every day. We ask Hashem to be able to find favor, not only in the eyes of people, but also in the eyes of God. So Esther comes to the palace 
She's coming to the palace. This is a, this is a sinful situation. A Jewish girl does not belong in Achashverosh's bed. It's not, it's not the right thing. And it's even the kind of thing for which a Jew generally is required to give their life. Which is, by the way, a big question. The Gemara talks about this. How, how did Esther submit herself? <coughs> so at this point, the Gemara wants you to know that she finds favor in everybody's eyes, including in Hashem's eyes. But now we're going to go back to the, the Pshut HaShom Mikra. Okay, Esther got taken, and, 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 and she's, she's described as, as, being, as, as finding favor. Why all of the seeming redundancies in this Pasuk? Why uh, all the unnecessary information, which ostensibly we have already, we didn't talk about another Esther, we haven't changed the storyline, it's the same storyline, we just heard about this a few verses ago. What is the Megillah trying to tell us? So the Malbum here really has, he's, uh, has, has some Givaldike insight. He says like this. First of all, we're contrasting the time, Esther's time, with everybody else's time. Everybody else couldn't wait for the time to come. How about Esther? No, it's a different story. When Esther's time came, it says, She was the exact opposite of everybody else. Because she wasn't looking to make herself most beautiful or make herself most attractive. She wasn't looking to find favor in Achashverosh's eyes. In fact, did she ask for anything? The whole idea of asking for anything, that she doesn't come in a good mood because she got the shoes she wanted, the bag she wanted, the jewelry she wanted. She got all the things she wanted. Now she's fantastic. She's in a great mood and ready for Achashverosh. She didn't ask for anything. And why are we talking about the daughter of Avichail and Doid Mordechai? So he says, Amalbun says something about it. Avichayel was a tzaddik. We know about Avichayel. He was an extraordinary person. And because of that, you say Esther had her father's traits. She had the traits of her father's righteousness. She had her father's personality, spiritual virtues, that she had these virtues with her by birth. But that wasn't enough. It was Mordechai's uncle. You can only imagine who he was if he's Mordechai, the, the Rebbe of the Jewish people. That's his uncle. But further... He says, Mordechai helped develop or unfold the incredible virtues that Esther naturally possessed. It's actually the idea of what a Rebbe is. The idea of a Rebbe is to help you find who you really are. Mordechai helped Esther become who she could be. Now why are we talking about this now? This is not a discussion of Esther's righteousness. This is a discussion of how she's going into Achashverosh. Since when does Achashverosh care about uh, spiritual mores or, or ethos or values or, or virtues? This is not an Achashverosh's uh, repertoire. All he's interested is in skin deep. If there's anything that's more than skin deep, it's what's the medical condition. But other than that, he has no other interest. He has no other interest. But I don't know if you heard about it. They, 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 this just doesn't make big news because it's not so interesting for people. It's much more interesting to talk about people building an, a living room extension in, in, in Jerusalem. So it didn't, doesn't make the news very much, but the Meshuggah Gaddafi, they found that he had like, like a harem, like a chashverish. He would, If he would go somewhere and find a woman that was attractive, he gave the sign, this woman was abducted, and she was uh, taken into some special place where he kept all these women, and that she was... Um, first, doctors came in, and they strapped her down, did all kinds of uh, medical checks to make sure it's okay for Gaddafi, then the, he sent in the, the, the estheticians and they make up this poor girl and do who knows what. And then the Qaddafi would come and rape them. 
This was going on for like uh, for decades, and they found it. Whatever it was, uh, made it in the news for one day. It's not so interesting, big deal. It's not so terrible, right? It's much, much more worse. What some Jews do in Israel is much bigger. That's that makes for daily headlines. But anyway, but the point is that Achashverosh uh, is no big tzaddik over here. And all he's interested in self-preservation and self-pleasure and self-gratification. That's the beginning, that's the middle, and that's the end. So why is the Megillah telling us that Esther has these wonderful spiritual qualities? That she's the daughter of Avichayel. That she's raised by Mordechai. Who cares? So we see from here that this is the beginning of the miracle that's unfolding in front of her eyes. It didn't make any sense that Esther was chosen as the queen. Because part of why Ahasuerus chose her was not for her physical beauty only. He chose her for her personality. He chose her because of the fine qualities that she possessed. But Ahasuerus didn't care about those things. He, he pickled these people for 12 months in, 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 in mirror oil. Who knows what he was doing to them. He didn't care about their personality. He, didn't, he just wanted them to be happy and willing and ready and pretty and clean. And that's it. It's all skin deep. Yet remarkably, such a hedonist, such a selfish person was taken by Esther's inner charm. And that is extraordinary. So that's what the Megillah is conveying to us. If you didn't have verses 12, 13, and 14, you wouldn't appreciate verse 15. You wouldn't understand the contrast between all the other maidens and between Esther. Which is especially true in light of the fact that, as we learned two weeks ago, that Esther had like a greenish color, greenish skin. It wasn't, she wasn't the, the most natural beauty. And yet, she somehow found favor in everybody's eyes. So Esther's turn comes. And Esther's turn is different from everybody else. Everybody else's turn is the long-awaited moment. For Esther, it's the long-dreaded moment. And she doesn't want to go there. And she's not interested in participating in this. And she has absolutely no desire to be a part of this, of this, of this charade. So the way the Malbum puts it, despite all of this, they knew this. The people knew this. Everybody around them knew it. But they overlooked it. She was so charming, it didn't make a difference. And in his words, he says, This somehow covered over and eclipsed and camouflaged all of the shortcomings. She had every shortcoming for this beauty pageant. She had none of the right virtues. She didn't even have the right, she didn't have a desire or interest. And yet at the same time, Esther comes there, and <coughs> what happens? Verse 16 continues that. Vatilokach Esther al She's taken. She doesn't go. She's taken. El Beis Malchusay to the house of his uh, government, to the house of his, of his, of his royalty. Bachedesh Asidi, in the 10th month, Huchedesh Tevis, this is the month of Tevis, Bishnas Sheva Lemalchusay, in the 7th year of his reign. So why do we have to know that this is Chedesh Tevis? Of what relevance is that? Of what relevance is it when, when Esther was taken? So the Gemara Megillah says something amazing. That the time of the year where intimacy is most appreciated, says the Gemara, is when it's really cold outside. And Tevis, it doesn't get that cold in, in, uh, in Persia, in Shushan. It's not exactly Canadian weather, but nonetheless, the coldest time of the year, when it's a rainy season, is during the month of Tevis. In other words, Esther has no interest in being a part of this. <coughs> but Minash Shamayim, it's arranged that she comes at the time, her time happens to fall at the time where it's most likely for Achashverosh to be taken in, to be interested, and, and therefore to want to follow up. 
We also know, if we know it was the seventh year, and we know that the story began in the third year, we know there's actually four years from Vashti's being killed until Esther becoming the queen. For four years, or for three and a half years, Achashverosh was busy seeing different ladies every night. That's a lot of ladies. We don't know how many ladies went through this Meshuggah's hands, but a lot of ladies got brutalized. He had a very big harem. And yet, nothing, so to speak, tickled his fancy. Nothing was, nothing, that's not the queen. They're all queens, they're all maybe queens, if he would call them back, if he could decide he wants to make them the queen. You know, they still live with hope, as they say. But, but, but until, until Esther comes, until the seventh year, there's, there's, there's no decision made. I think this helps us understand and appreciate how much competition Esther was up against. How many women Achishverosh had already been through. Why do we call it Chaydish Tevis? Who Chaydish Asidi? So this is, this is interesting. I mean, um, Rashi simply paraphrases the Gemara and he says, It's a time of cold. That's the time that one body physically benefits from or has the most pleasure from being warmed by another body because it's cold outside. And Rashi really drives this point home. He says, Zimin HaKadosh Baruch Hu also ace. God arranged this time specifically so that she would find most favor in his eyes. So it's all It's all from the hand of God. The Ibn Ezra says that Chedesh Tevis is the name of Kazdim, which we generally translate as Chaldeans. Um, the Chaldeans were a, a, an ethnic minority within Babylon, Babylonia, who at some point rose to great prominence, and Belshazzar was considered a Chaldean. Belshazzar is the last king of the Babylonian Empire. So, probably this was in the language of the day, in the, or at least in the, in the language of nobility of the day, that was the way they referred to the month. Maybe it's because this was written for Persians. Remember, this was written in the annals of the king. We learned many a class ago <coughs> that the style of the Megillah is written in camouflage. It's written in a way which can be appreciated uh, from the milieu in which the story of Purim unfolded. It's not, written in, it's not written typically for Jews, and that's why we don't want to mention the name of Hashem, because then they would come and put different deities, and that, that wouldn't be a good thing. At any rate, um, so why do we have to emphasize that it's the 10th month then? So, so the Ibn Ezra says, because spring is always a time for renewal. In any culture, whether, regardless of when they have New Year's, everybody feels spring is a new beginning whether you're Chinese or Muslim or Christian, whether you have your New Year's in January or any time of the year or whatever. Spring is always a new beginning. And it is like that for us Jewish people also. Spring, Chaydesha Aviv, Pesach has to come in the spring. So therefore, we know now it's the 10th month from the beginning, from renewal, so what does that tell us then? If spring is renewal, it is the 10th month, what are we in, in, in which season? Smack in the winter season, which drives home that point of Aguf Nenem and Aguf. So, that's the, uh, that's the emphasis that, that's being played out in this Pasuk, and that's what we're driving home about the time that Esther was taken into the palace. So what happens? She gets taken into the palace. 
an amazing thing happens. The king loves Esther more than all the rest of the women. She finds grace and kindness in his, before him. Mikol Habsulas from all the maidens. He places a crown, a royal crown on her head. He appoints her as king. He queens her, so to speak. Makes her queen of the entire empire. So there's a lot, a lot to focus on in this Pasuk. First of all, it says, The king loves Esther, from all the women. Now, if you take a look at all the verses that precede this, we didn't mention women. We mentioned besulos. We mentioned maidens, young maidens. We talked about beit hanoshim. We talked about the harem. It's called the house of the women. But we didn't talk about the women. We talked about the young maidens. So why all of a sudden the king loves her more than all the nashim, all than the women, instead of more than all the maidens? That's question one. And question two is, it says, if you say, okay, fine, he's not calling them Sulis anymore. At this point, the Megillah is going to begin to call them Nashim. No, but no, the same Pasuk right after that. It says, he loved her from all the Nashim, from all the women. And the very next statement in the verse is, from all of the young maidens. So he loves her more than the women. He finds, she finds favor more than all of the young maidens. What's going on over here? What do we have this back and forth? What is, what is uh, the Megillah trying to tell us? So, here's what the Alshech says. The Alshech tells us that the notion of the d different comparisons are really about who was Esther's competition. He says the woman who were set to go before Ahasuerus were called Besulos, which, by the way, means virgins. That's, that's the simple, that's the simple meaning, says the After they spent the night with Ahasuerus, they definitely weren't virgins anymore. So what did they become called afterwards? They, then they were bumped up to Noshim. And that's why it's called Beis HaNoshim Sheni, the second house. That's a house for the woman who Ahasuerus had already. So he says like this. The women who Ahasuerus already had spent time with, who were in his harem now, were still in the running to become the queen. He didn't, he didn't say they couldn't, they couldn't become the queen again. He just said, you know, I'm not sure. He was very indecisive. Couldn't make up his mind. Maybe this one, maybe that one, maybe I'm not sure. Let's try another one. And then there's all the besulais, there's all the young maidens that come afterwards. And this is the people who he has yet to see. So the Megillah is telling us that Ahasuerus <coughs> loved Esther more than all the women he saw already. And she found favor in his eyes more so than all the women who he had yet to spend time with. Now the obvious question is, how could he find favor in her eyes more than the women who he didn't spend time with yet? You should have to try everybody else first. Stop he stopped looking. But he said, you know what, let me just see what they look like. Let me just to be sure. So the rest of these poor women got to go in the hit parade. They just got to prance in front of Ahasuerus to make sure that he was 1,000% certain Esther was the one. Okay, so he had, 
He had Esther to compare against before, and then he has Esther now to compare against the next set of ladies. And that's why we have two different uh, expressions. We have Mikol, Vayav Esther, Mikol Hanoshim, and then it says, Vatisachem Vechesed, Mikol HaBesulis, they remained Besulis. Achashverosh didn't violate the next set. The rest of the ladies who didn't have a chance yet, he didn't touch them. A look, one look was good enough for him to confirm that Esther was the one. That's what the Alshech says. Now, the, the, the truth is that the Alshech does acknowledge that the Gemara says something a little bit different. The Gemara says, Mikol HaNoshim means that Achashverosh was Yenet Tzadik. Not only he took young girls, he took some married women too. He took all kinds of girls. He, was, he wasn't particular. He was particular about their beauty. He was particular about their form. But he wasn't particular about morals. So, so, so she's married, big deal. Either the husband will shut up and that's fine. Otherwise, we can just kill him. And okay. We'll have to do what we'll have to do. But you know, business is business. We're trying to run a country over here. It's very important. We have to have a new queen. Nothing can stand in the way of this. That's, that's what the Gemara actually says. And the Alshach acknowledges that. And, and uh, the Gemara even tells, uh, Rav says, that Achashver said, how do I know I like a young maiden? Maybe I want somebody with experience. I have to try everything. This is royal business. I mean, you, you have to make sure you're getting the right goods. So therefore, Achashverosh made sure to have all kinds of sampling. <laughs> he had to try a full array <laughs> until he can make the right decision about who was worthy to be the queen. By the way, this is not that different than the hedonistic society we live in today. What is the currency in a lot of, in a lot of areas of today's society? What's, what's, what's relevant or important? But the strength of character, menschlichkeit, ethos, wisdom. What's, what, what do you get chosen for in Hollywood? For looks, end of story, finished. It is what it is. And so it is with much of arts and entertainment and culture today that this is uh, where we live in a depraved society. Not, not much has changed in all those years. It's a cyclical thing, but that's how we are today. We claim to be in an age, an era that respects women. But actually, our society is the most disrespectful to women that one could ever imagine. That's the truth. So this is how, this is how the Alshech explains the Pshat. This is what the Gemara says, obviously, is true. That's for sure, you know, he did those things too. But the way we understand the Pshat over here is that Achashverosh was comparing her. That, that was the comparison. The Dubna Magid asked the question, so why does it say Vayehav? He loved Esther more than the Nashim, but Vatisachem v'Chesed Lefanov more than the Besulis. How does that work? So the Dubna Magid suggests the following. He says that actually, there's love means you. Why, why do people love something? Because it has virtues or value that makes them feel good, that completes them. You know. Uh, they say in Yiddish, how do you say they, they're in love in Yiddish? You know how you say it? <laughs> what does it mean? They love themselves. They love themselves. So the guy is looking for a beautiful girl, right? He's, that's all he's interested in. He found this beautiful girl. He said, oh, this is what I like. What does he really love? He loves himself. And the girl's looking for a stud. She says, oh, I found my stud. Who does she really love? She's interested in herself. It's, 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 this is how he's able to fulfill his own desires. This is how he's able to feel fulfilled. He's looking for self-fulfillment. So that kind of love, which is, by the way, pretty cheap love, and it's, uh, all, all love may begin with an external attraction. Unfortunately, in today's skin-deep reality, a lot of it ends over there. And what happens in Hollywood, where everybody falls in love? 
is wildly in love and crazy romantic and passionate, forget about it. It's like a, through the roof for three months. Because then he meets her friend. He says, ah, you know what? It's, this is, three months ago, you were the one. But you know, like, I now think she has it. And if that doesn't work, she meets his friend. And she says, Astad bistigivezen, you know, like, but now I met the other one. It's much more exciting. So that's why we have the plastic marriages in Hollywood that last on average, uh, depends whose statistics. If it's hours, weeks, or years. But it doesn't go past five, five years. That's a chas v'shalom, you know, that wouldn't work. So this idea of, like, ahava is just love. Love is something which is the result, it's the sum total of the details. I love that, I love that, I love that, I love that. Okay, what happens if you find somebody that has better? Oh, I love that even more. So Ahasuerus loves him more than all the other women. He already tried all them. And now he tried this. He says, I love this the most. This is the best. Okay. But how do you know you love her more than the other ones? You didn't try the other ones yet. This is true. So that's why the Megillah says, Batisa chen v'chesed. The word chen in Hebrew, which means charisma, is also connected to the Hebrew word chinam, which means like for free. You, you can't really quantify it. The Dubu the, Magid the points out that when Shimshon Hagiber met this lady in a place called Timna, Timnasa, and he was with a Pilishti. He came home. This is the story, the heartbreak of every Jewish parent. He came home with a shiksa. And so they said to him, please, you couldn't find yourself a Jewish girl. <laughs> you had to fall in love with a Pilishti. Nothing to do with today's Palestinians, by the way. That's a whole, uh, that's Hadrian's curse. That, uh, whatever, that's another story. But the point is, Shimshon did what, unfortunately, a lot of Jewish boys are doing. So the father, father and mother said to him, it's a big Jewish people. You couldn't find one Jewish girl you love? So what does he say to them? Listen, this one is, this is the one. She is, she is, she is the one. Why? I, I, that's the one I want. In other words, sometimes a person feels drawn to something and it doesn't make sense. Why? What, 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 did, what did you find over there? To, 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 the, to the casual observer, they say, I, I don't understand this. You know, like, Two plus two is equaling seven. This, this, the mathematics don't make sense. But when a person is in that, when they're, when they're, when they're caught, when they're, when, they're, when they're, so to speak, swept up with a certain idea of chain, of charisma, something finds favor in their eye, it doesn't necessarily have to be quantifiable. You don't have to explain it. You can have to rationalize it. You just know this is the one. Shimshin wasn't even willing to listen to anything else. He wouldn't hear about anybody else. He said, this is the one. Forget about it. And, uh, you know, the rest of the history, as you say. Unfortunately, Shimshin didn't last very long afterwards. It's very tra- it comes to a very tragic end with this wonderful uh, Delilah that he found. So the, the Dubna Magad says this is the same point we make over here. The point is, he says, that there is, that there is uh, charm, which is not the result of any specific uh, love or desire, he said. It's like this, there's, it's love versus favor. There's something about he found favor in her. And that's why the king didn't need to try everybody else. He didn't need to know anything, everything about everybody else. He just he wanted to make sure that he found favor here because it's like suddenly something about Esther just, it totally captivated him. He, he, he wasn't interested in anybody else. So he says, let me see everybody else. Let them just come in front of me. Which to me, the Dubna Magid's mushal follows in the footsteps of the Alshech. I don't know if he saw the Alshech. He didn't live 
that much time apart. Maybe he did. But it sounds to me this is this is this is the approach of the Alshach. This is exactly what Rabbi Alshach is saying. The difference between Nashim and Besulais is the way he's explaining it. The Maggid adds another layer to it. He explains that's why there's a difference between Batisa Chain Vechesed versus the notion of a Yehav. And he says, and this is further underscored by the idea, as we mentioned, that Esther was like greenish. And we don't even know why she found favor in his eyes. We don't know why she found favor in everybody's eyes. The whole thing didn't make sense. Nobody understood this. What did the king see in her? But then they said, what do we see in her? Why is everybody so taken by Esther? But they were. That's the story. And so this is, this is the case. Ahasuerus doesn't say, okay, take her away, send her back, let me think, let me sleep over it with somebody else or not. But let me think about it. He said, that's it. This is the one. He didn't send it to the harem and then call her back. He crowned her as the queen. Right there and then. The feeling of absolute certainty overcame Ahasuerus and she, beca she became in his eyes the picture of the perfect woman. In fact, the Gemara says like this. The Gemara says, what is the meaning of the, 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 uh, <coughs> that she found favor in his eyes Mikol HaNoshim? The Gemara says that up until, up until Esther came along, the gold standard was Vashti. Ahasuerus had a big portrait of Vashti in his room, and every woman he met, he would compare her to Vashti. Eh, he didn't really measure up. Vashti was still the gold standard. Yes, he killed her. Had some regrets because of it, but there was a gold standard. Now, for the first time, he replaces the portrait. He commissions a portrait of Esther, and then now Esther becomes the new gold standard of the perfect woman. And this is what happened so swiftly, so speedily, despite the fact that Esther wasn't interested in this and didn't prepare herself and all the other things, all of a sudden this happened. So in and of itself, would you call this a miracle? Maybe. Maybe an anomaly. Maybe weird. I'm not sure. I don't know what this means. S stuff happens. But when you, when you start putting the pieces together, how Vashti is killed, how she's the gold standard, and Esther all of a sudden, you start slowly to see the Yad Hashem, the hand of Hashem, which is slowly but surely putting into place the salvation for the Jewish people prior to the Tzaras. Haman hasn't come along with his idea yet. He didn't hatch the final solution, the genocidal plan to deal with the world's Jews. But already HaKadosh Baruch Hu puts in place what could overcome Haman's Gzeira if only the Jewish people would do tshuva. So Hashem put everything in place for them. Ultimately, the Jewish people had to pull the trigger. And that's what we'll learn later on in the Vigila. Their wave of tshuva catalyzed and activated all these things that Hashem, these sleeper things that Hashem put in place, all the sleeper cells, that everything was able to come together. And, and that, that's the story of Purim. That's the miracle of Purim. So now we know about, about Esther coming and about her not uh, wanting and nonetheless being, being crowned. Now, we've talked about so far everything here in a level of pshat, of, 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 of drush. Now we're going to learn a little chassidus together. You understand that everything in Torah is not only eternally true, but also eternally relevant. And not only it's to be taken literally, not only are we reading about miracles, and we're definitely reading about miracles, and knowing these details help us appreciate how great the miracle was. I bet you never knew all this. I bet you said, listen to the beginning, you didn't realize how remarkable it was that Esther got chosen, and how she was chosen, and who her competition was. So, wow, it's amazing. Hashem loves us. He really put all this in place. It's all true, and that's inspiring. But there's also a lesson in Avedis Hashem. And we started talking about this before already. In the last class, we talked about the idea that Esther and Hadassah represents the Neshama. In general, the notion of 
God and the Jewish people, or often our relationship is metaphorized as husband and wife, male and female, and we play the female role. So Esther represents the neshama, and we talked last week about Esther being Hadassah, right, the, the beautiful teaching, the Hasidic teaching about how the neshama is able to remain Hadassah despite the fact that she's now called Esther, which is concealed. So the Rebbe in another mimer says that what is the message, what's the spiritual message of an Esther came and she asked for nothing? That also has a spiritual message. Okay, so let's step back and think about this. Who's the king in the story? Who's really the king? I know Achashverosh is the king. But <laughs> who is it a representation of? Spiritually. Malkei Shalalam, the master of the universe. Almighty God. So every time it says the word Hamelech, it's really talking about Hashem. So Esther coming to the king would have to read in spiritual terminology. What would that be? Who's Esther coming to the king? Us, coming before God. Now, what is Esther going for? Are they going to play ping pong? What, what happens in the bedroom over there with Achashverosh? There's an intimate moment. So what is the, uh, the, the parallel of an intimate moment for the neshama with God? What is considered an intimate moment during the course of our day? Davening. Davening. Okay. So, you try to daven, you try to lift yourself out of the reality that you're in, try to come a little closer to Hashem. That's what we're supposed to try to do. You know, Yaakov, you know, when he sees the ladder, the Tsar says, Sulam dot The ladder is a metaphor for prayer. You go from level to level, trying to divest yourself of the things that weigh us down, all the white noise that doesn't allow us to hear the music and try to come a little closer to Takadosh Baruch. So sometimes when the neshama makes this journey, it's aided and assisted by what we call malachim, which have nothing to do with people wrapped in cellophane with little funny things on their head. That's just Hollywood's depiction of malachim. It's ridiculous. A malach is a spiritual force, a spiritual force that's single-minded. You know, we have Ahava Malachim. They only, know, they only know how to do Ahava. We have Yira Malachim. They only know how to be in awe of God. A Malach is it's like, a, it's like a, a program, a computer program. It only can focus in one direction. It all, there's no fuzzy logic. It can't deal with surprises unless you pro, pre-program the surprises. That's what Neshamas could deal with. Neshamas deal with extraordinary, strange, unusual circumstances, and we have to react. And Hashem is cheering us on. Yeah, let's see if you can do this. So... When the neshama comes before Hashem, comes comes before Hashem, it's aided and abetted by various malachim that Hashem helps, sends to help us. There's a pasuk in Tehillim, in Kapitel Amidalad, it says, Malach Hashem that the angel of God encamps around those who revere him, those who fear him, right? He delivers them. So mystical teaching tells us this is the malachim who delivered the neshama, bring the neshama closer to HaKadosh Baruch so, the Rebbe says like this, when do Malachim deliver you? When you come before Hashem with what we call Ahava V'yira, or come before Hashem with a Ratzin, come before Hashem with a love for Hashem, come before Hashem with reverence and awe for Hashem, which are considered to be the two dominant forces in elevating the Neshama. That's why the Zohar compares it to wings. It says the, the, the wings of the bird are the Chile V'rechimu, the idea of love and fear. And that's how the neshama, and it's flying, the neshama's flight, the neshama's ascendancy is based on certain variables. So you're basing on those variables and you have malachim that help propel along. 
But there is another way for the neshama to come before Hashem. And that is, when the neshama doesn't ask for anything. When instead of focusing on our own spiritual sophistication, we focus on nothing. We're in a total state of what's called, in the Hasidic lexicon, bitl. Self-abnegation, total meltdown. When the neshama is like that, when it came Esther's turn, Esther is the neshama. And like Biksha Dover, she didn't ask for anything. Whatever she be told, but I'll just do what I have to do. What happens? What happened was in the end, Esther found favor everywhere. What is the Pshat in this Maimah? What is, what, is, what is the Rebbe really saying over here? First of all, I don't know. But I think, here's what I think. There's a story I once heard many years ago about a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov, whose name I don't remember. I don't know if he has a name in the story, but he was a disciple. And this disciple of the Baal Shem Tov was preparing not for Purim, but for Pesach. And as is common sometimes in Jewish households, it gets very hectic before Pesach. And this person was under tremendous pressure. And, and he was under so much pressure and he had so much to do that he didn't get around to sleeping much. And then he had to do Bidigas Chametz once upon a time for devout Jews. It took them half the night. It was a whole night searching for Chametz. It's a whole spiritual idea of Bidigas Chametz. And anyway, the next day, you know, he had this stuff to do. You have to burn the Chametz. You have to prepare the lettuce and grind the chrein, And you have to help and clean it. So it's a lot, a lot of stuff to do. So he came to the Seder. The guy, the fellow had hardly slept in, in days. And he had one strong cup of wine. And then another strong cup of wine. And somewhere in the middle of Magid, his forehead hit the table. And they fell into a slumber. They couldn't wake him up. <laughs> and this is how he sleeps for a few hours. And then he wakes up. It's like 20 to 12. Before Chatzais. He's supposed to finish eating the Afikoyman by Chatzais. Afikoyman. He's in the middle of Magid. And his heart sank. And he was in a total panic. So he raced through Magid, obviously not thinking about one half word he sang, and brokenheartedly knocked down the second cup of wine. And then afterwards, he quickly ran and he washed. And he ate matzah as quickly as he could, chomping down two kazesim of matzah. And then he chomped down the murder. And, he chomped down, and he's like in a race, just trying to get there before Chatzais. And it's like, you know, you can't even see his hands moving. He's doing it so quickly. And finally, he manages to pull into the finish line. He's getting his last kazayas of matzah down, and he finished... He finishes Afikim uh, and he feels horrible. He feels like a, a failure. It's terrible. This is a Seder. It's not like, like a peasant. No, no, no heart, no mind, no feeling, nothing. Felt terribly heartbroken. Terribly heartbroken. Finished off saying the rest of the Seder and he went to bed very, very distraught. But he figured, you know what? Chassid's not supposed to be, get down for too long. He said, at least I'm outside of Israel. I have another kick at the can tomorrow night. So, uh, he came home from Shul the next night, he went to sleep, and he got a really good nap in. And by the time he came to the second Seder, now he was well-rested, and he was full of verve and stamina, and boy, did he have a Seder, you know, every single word. And also, you don't have a problem with Chatzos, the second Seder. You don't have to expire a certain time. So, he was able to do what he had to do, and it was a wonderful Seder. He was delighted. What happened? What happened? He felt great. He felt fantastic. He felt so fulfilled. And a while later, he's by the Baal Shem Tev, and he comes to the Baal Shem Tev, Baal Shem Tev says, I have to tell you that you, true, you brought tremendous nachas ruach, tremendous pleasure to God from your Seder. So the, yeah, the Chassid smiled and he said, yeah, that second Seder, he said, 
I really, I, I nailed it, he said. I, I had Kavanas Harizal every step of the way, and I knew what I was doing, and I was thinking, and I was meditating. It was a wonderful Seder. The Bashanta said, no, no, no. The second Seder was okay. But the first Seder, he said, that really made a big mark in heaven. Why? Because as they say, there's nothing as whole as a broken heart. Because he came with a sense of total bittle. He didn't fall asleep because he was negligent. He, his body collapsed. But he felt so bad about it. Not to say, okay, now I'm going to feel bad. No, he really felt bad. He was sincerely heartbroken. What was he heartbroken by? He was heartbroken that he, he couldn't serve Hashem in the way he thought was appropriate and proper. And that's what bothers you. And from and when that you're tzubrachet, and you're doing your best to follow along and do everything properly, this caused nachas on high. So I think, that's what I think is the pshat in this maimer. That's the meaning. The vaygiyah teresto, in the, ter, in the, 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 the time of the neshama comes, the neshama has a special opportunity. After who knows whatever happened in the past. And you have your chance to come before the melech. You come before the melech, you come with your virtues, you come with your zachuyot, your merits, and you know, you come before the king. You're all adorned, you have all the jewelry, you have all the makeup, you, you look good before the king. Or, sometimes you come before the king with absolute, utter simplicity. And that could bring about that you find chen peini koreya, that bring about the greatest charisma. Amazing spiritual concept. Anyway, so this is the story of Esther. Okay, so she now is the queen. Achashverosh has made her the, 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 the ruler, so to speak, <coughs> of the entire empire. And the Megillah goes on to tell us that Achashverosh makes a great big party. I get a party. <laughs> what, do you, what is the party about now? So, Megillah says, He made a great party, a great meal, to all of his loyals, all the ministers who were loyal to him. We talked about that a long time ago, but he didn't just take ministers. He didn't care if you were nobility. If you were loyal to him, that's another story. This was for his people. He called it the Esther party. Not only he made a great party, but he also granted release which is understood to be that he waived the taxes, the provincial taxes. And not only that, he gave gifts, but <laughs> gifts are like a king could give gifts. What is going on over here? So the truth is that he made a party is not so hard to understand because clearly he was a party animal. He loved parties. And he liked to demonstrate everything, so now he, he got married to a new queen. He made himself a party. Why is he taking off the taxes? Uh, anyway, why, why does the Megillah tell this to us? Who he invited, why he invited, and so on and so forth. So, Rashi doesn't say very much. He just says that the, the provincial taxes waived was l'chavayda. It was an honor of Esther. He niach He gave them respite. Min hamas for the tax that was on them. And, shalom He sent them gifts. And then Rashi says eight very important words. He explains what this whole party is about. Vahakoil, all of this. Kedela Fatoisa was all to try to get Esther to open up. Ulai Tagid Meladata. Maybe she'll tell us where she's really from. Zachashvesh was smitten. Now imagine the chutzpah. The last time a woman said no to him, he killed her. And he says, Where are you from? I don't really know. Oh, come on, you don't know. Tell me where you're from. She says, no, no, my parents died when I was, I, I don't know, I'm like on a, 
He says, don't be silly, Esther. You have to know. She says, no, I'm telling you, I have no idea where I'm from. He doesn't believe her. <laughs> so he makes a big party. And it's all to get her to open up. And Afal Pikein, nonetheless, she doesn't speak. The Sifzer Chalm says something amazing. He says, what's going on over here? Esther was living in Mordechai's house. She's his cousin, according to someone opinion, his wife. But there was no Jews who were ready to stab Mordechai in the back? Come on, like, Jewish history tells us this couldn't be true. There has to be some troublemaker Jew who's going to sell out his fellow Jew for a few, a, few, a few bucks. He uses the same word that's used by Rashi in the Badassan and Avirim with Moshe. He uses the word deleterian. There's got to be a deleterious Jew, a Jew who's ready to stab Mordechai in the back, who would say, come on, she's a Jew. Somebody's going to say something. But the thing is like this. When the Jew who wanted to make trouble came and said, she's a Jew, guess what Achashverosh said? Oh yeah, right, right. The Greek said she's a Greek. The Chaldean says she's a Chaldean. The, 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 the Egyptian says she's Egyptian. The Syrian says she's Syrian. And now the Jews claim, claim is theirs too. Great, everybody's Jewish. You know, like the famous thing, everybody's Jewish. Everybody famous, yeah, they must be Jewish. Why do they have to be Jewish? Because it has to be Jewish. He didn't take them seriously. He didn't believe them. And he said, Esther, are you Jewish? He said, <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just like, you know, I'm just the people's princess. I don't know, I don't come from anywhere. So Achashverosh is going crazy. He says, we got to get to the bottom of this. And because of this, <coughs> he went, this is Rashi's take on it. He went and he, he granted everybody off with the taxes. He figured if he'll do them a favor and he won't charge them taxes, they're for sure going to come forward. He said, look what I'm doing for your people, Esther. And then he said, and your people, and your people. I mean, I think they're all your people. I'm taking care of your people. He wasn't sure which people. So he took care of all the people. And if that doesn't work, I, look, I send your people gifts. Which people? All the people. I'm sending them gifts. I'm trying to, I, w- I want you to tell me where you're from. It's interesting that the, um, the Ibn Ezra doesn't go there. He just says, Hanukkah means like menucha, like respite. Because he was so happy with Esther. But Rashi drives the point home. And actually the Malbum says, it's in triplicate. He pressures Esther in triplicate. He's, she's trying his best to get her to open up. First of all, he made her a big party. But not just a party. He called it Esther party. He said, look how famous I made you. You like Esther? I made you famous. It's your party. Tell me where you're from. No, no. <laughs> I told you, my darling. I have no idea where I'm from. Oh, yeah, he doesn't believe her. Okay, fine. So he said he made her his whole big, this big party. He called all the ministers in. He thought she'll, she'll be embarrassed for the ministers. Nobody wants to look bad. You want to look like an illegitimate child who was dumped to somebody's doorstep? She'll say, well, in front of everybody, you brought Sarav Avodov. This is your inner circle. I'm really pleased to tell everybody, I am a... Is that garnished? Nothing doing? So what does he do? After he takes off all the taxes. He says, maybe once I'll take off, I'll give a, 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 a tax break, the people will be so excited with a tax break. By the way, that hasn't changed in history. Everybody loves a tax break. See, they'll be so excited, we'll find out. Somebody will come forward. I'll really find out the truth. And that didn't work. So he gave them gifts. And she still wouldn't tell. Nothing doing. Doesn't say anything. Esther remains mum. <coughs> and she doesn't say anything. So this is a very interesting, the second detail over here, how Mordechai had the intuition to tell Esther not to tell where she's from. Because otherwise the whole story of Purim doesn't happen. And Achashverosh, it gets into his head that he must know where she's from. And despite this all, pressures her, there's all kind of things, and it doesn't make a difference. And she doesn't respond. 
And this is where we understand the next passage. He gathered all kinds of young maidens again. Sitting in the king's gate. What is going on in Pasuketes? You gathered maidens again. You, you, you ended. The beauty contest is over. What are you gathering maidens again for? And anyway, what does Mordechai sitting over there have anything to do with the gathering of maidens? So actually, the Gemara says, Mordechai advised her, advised the king. He said, if you want to find out who she really is, make her jealous. Make believe you're interested in another woman. And then she'll for sure try to get your attention. Now, Mordechai was hoping that this crazy Achashverosh should get his head off, 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 off Esther, and he could take her back, as the Rishon Lutzian, as Arachayim explains. Why would Mordechai give the king advice like that? He doesn't want her to be there. So the Arachayim says she doesn't want her to be here. This was all a plot by Mordechai. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He wasn't told by Hashem the future. But he, he's trying to do the reasonable thing. And, and he figures, even she'll bring other women, and they'll be jealous. And she still won't talk. Achashverosh will get fed up with her. And actually, maybe he'll find somebody else he likes. But nothing doing. It doesn't work. There's a, a, a fascinating um, comment that's found in Lakuti Anche Shem that says that it was actually Esther's advice to bring Mordechai in. How could she do that? Everybody knows she's Jewish. She said, My dear husband, you know that I'm very smart. He was very taken by her wisdom. She says, You know, all the other famous kings before you, they all had a Jew. Everybody had a Jew in the court. Nebuchadnezzar had a Jew, Daniel, sitting there. You should have a Jew. He needs a good Jew. So he said, oh, my darling, that's a wonderful idea. Do you know any good Jews? She said, funny you should ask. There's this guy named Mordechai. I heard he's a very, very wise Jew. He said, okay, fine, let's appoint Mordechai. And then he becomes a senator here. And amazingly, according to the Likute An Shashem, he becomes a senator through Esther's cajoling without anybody ever figuring out that it was Esther's cousin or uncle, whatever. So, so, so this is the way she, his whole thing gets arranged. And El, El Mordechai comes, his first job, he figures, okay, I'm here, I got to do what's my first thing I have to try to do is help Esther escape. So he comes up with this idea of a new beauty pageant. He brings the girls for another parade. It doesn't work. Achashverosh is not interested. And despite all of this, Ein Esther Megedis Meladota, Esther does not tell her birth, as Amma, her nation, as Mordechai commanded her, as Mama Mordechai, Esther Ose. Whatever. Mordechai says, Esther does. As when she was loyal to him. As when she was living in his house. Rashi tells us, why is Ain Esther Megedis Melarata? Why doesn't she tell it? What's the big deal? I says, you know why? Because Mordechai was Yoshev B'Shah HaMelech. And that's what she put in there. She needed advice. She needs to know what's going on. Tell me what to do next. And Mordechai Hameramza, Hameramza. He's inspiring her. Gives her the, and he's also winking, and sends her signs. So Mordechai is telling her what to do. Okay, no problem. She knows what to do. She never speaks to Mordechai, but they, they know each other. So they, he sends signs like this. And as such, Esther follows the advice of Mordechai blindly, without knowing or understanding why. And ultimately, the rest, as they say, becomes history. Now we understand how everything is set. This is the, the stage is set now for the miracle of Purim. And then there's going to be one last very important thing that gets set, which is that because of Mordechai's new elevated position, he hears over here something, he ends up saving the king's life, and later on, that's going to be the catalyst, as you're going to soon see. So, so Pedic Bay really sets the whole stage for the future redemption. Before we go in afterwards to Pedic Gimel, don't run yet so fast. I'm going to teach you two more beautiful uh, lessons. Then, 
after, after we get to the third chapter, then the trouble begins. The trouble. But this is all, the whole chapter two is just setting the stage. So I want to share with you two Meredika insights from the Rebbe with regard to these two Pesukim we just learned. The first thing it says in Mordechai Yeshev, Bishar HaMelech. So the Rebbe says, you know, all of Torah is eternally relevant. And especially in the Megillah, which is like the story of our exilic existence. And especially in something Mordechai does. If Mordechai did something, he didn't know he was saving the Jewish people. He did something. He was, he was Yeshev. He was sitting over there. It's a lesson for us too. So in a word, the Rebbe says that if a Jew finds himself in a certain place, that he has a sacred obligation, that he should utilize that opportunity fully. Mordechai found himself in the king's, in the king's court. So he's a senator now. So he could have, this is sugar. what do they want from me? I've got to go back and learn. I've got to have, have things to do. I'll show up on occasion, do whatever it has to do. No, so Mordechai Yeshev. Mordechai Yeshev means <coughs> he sat there. He spent time over there. He put himself into it. Years ago, I was speaking to a, a, a good friend, Nebuch, who passed away uh, very young, back to Larry Resnick, Olav Shalom. And he told me that, that he met this fellow I forgot, we were living in Detroit, and, and I think he worked for Asia or something. I don't, I don't remember this, who this guy's name was. He was once uh, in the upper echelons of a particular university, oh, of a particular sco- scope of influence. And his speech was, I left it all behind. And now I learned, I learned in a kolo, in Yerushalayim, I learned Torah all day. And they wanted Lai Resnick to come there. They're trying to, like, he said, don't be so Lubavitch, you know, like, see other things, listen to other speakers, and he, this is like... This, this story was supposed to inspire Larry. <laughs> so he told me, I said, Larry, what did you say? Like, uh, he said, well, I have the guy. I said, I don't understand you. Hashem put you in a place of such influence, and you left it all behind, and now you learn a whole day in Kol in Yerushalayim? He said, why do you think Hashem put you there? Anybody can learn to the Kol in Yerushalayim all day. And the guy was like, what? I made such a sacrifice. And he said, I don't care. It's not about you. It's about the Jewish people. And he says to me, Larry, I think if the Rebbe would tell this, if he would ask the Rebbe, the Rebbe would tell him, you're there? You have to stay there. You have a shlichus there. He's probably right. He's probably right. Your self-preservation, self-spiritual growth. <laughs> I'm not interested in this. But a year has to learn from Mordechai. He gets put Bashar HaMelech. He has a job to do Bashar HaMelech. Every single one of us has unique opportunities. The Abish to put you somewhere, the Megillah is telling you, then utilize it fully. Because obviously there's got to be some kind of destiny. There has to be some kind of mission. Maybe it's to touch one soul. Maybe it's to touch five souls. Maybe it's to touch a hundred souls. Maybe you can bring salvation to the whole Jewish people. Did Mordechai know at this time what was going to develop? Of course he didn't. But he understood that if Hashgach Pratis put him somewhere, that he has to be there. He has to throw himself into it. And in doing so, he ends up becoming the one who, who catalyzes Gula Yeshua for the Jewish people. And here's a final question, a final point we're going to address. Who's calling the shots here? Who's calling all the shots? Mordechai. Right? Esther, very, very brilliantly and cunningly, gets him elevated, right? According to the Chudoshan Shashem. So he could give her a sign. He needs, you know, give me the sign. Who calls the shots? The catcher or the pitcher? The catcher, he's standing right behind the batter. He knows the batter. So he goes like this or like that. I don't know, they have signs over there. Right? He tells the pitcher what to throw. Mordechai is like the catcher. He's like right there. He's telling Esther. Winks this way, goes that way, giving her signs. Who is really calling the shots? You keep hearing again and again and again. Mordechai said this. Mordechai said that. Mordechai told her to jump. She jumped. Mordechai said, don't jump, don't jump. Who's, whose name is on the Megillah? Why is, why is the Megillah Mordechai? 
That's just a fall guy. <laughs> He's the puppeteer. You're going to applaud the puppet or the puppeteer? So, the Gemara Taka says, you're right, you're right, we said it's correct, because she did it. And ultimately, when the push came to shove, she Taka went on the serious nefesh. So, but you can't ignore Mordechai's role here. Ultimately, Mordechai, at the very least, should be Megillus Mordechai the Esther, or Esther or Mordechai. It's like he doesn't get any billing here. You read the Megillah, Mordechai is the one who is designing this every single step of the way. It's true, the Rebbe says, the Gemara says, Esther came and said, Kisavun she was the one who pleaded with the sages to understand it, to recognize that this is part of the canon of, of, of the Jewish people, it's part of Tanakh. It's true. But still, the fact that Mordechai's name is missing seems to be a glaring omission. So the Rebbe says something Givaldic. He said, you should know that at the end of the day, it was really Esther. Mordechai was there to help Esther to find her own strength. Mordechai was there to help guide Esther so that Esther could make the move. At the, at the end of the day, when, everything, when all, all the smoke settled, who didn't say where she was from? Esther didn't. So she got Mordechai's advice. But it was, it was Esther who really did everything. And that's why it's called Megillah Esther. This is such an important lesson. It's again the whole idea of what a Rebbe is. What's the Rebbe's job? He winks to you, he tells you, at the end of the day, who has to do it? You have to do it. There's a story told that there was a certain chassid who came to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said, I want you to speak to so-and-so about growing his beard. So he said, okay. And then he came back, he was in Yechidz a few months later, and the Rebbe said, Nu, Vas Herzach, what's going on with so-and-so? Hatafalazna bar, did he start growing his beard? He said, no. So the Rebbe said, no, I want you to go back and speak to him. So he went back and he spoke to him and he comes back and said, not bored, you a beard? No, he's not, not ready to make that, that plunge you know, in Chassidus. So the third time he's in Yechidus, and the Rebbe asking him again, and the Rebbe's again. So he says, if the Rebbe wants so-and-so to have a beard, the Rebbe should tell him. Because if the Rebbe will tell him, he will not be able to say no. Me, he says no to. So the Rebbe said, if I tell him, it's my beard, not his beard. That's the point. At the end of the day, it's not Mordechai's Megillah, it's Esther's Megillah. And that's our story. Many people can help us, can guide us, can inspire us, but at the end of the day, whose story is it? It's our story. And that's the lesson, the eternal lesson, that we all learn from Esther Hamalka.